for giving us the privilege of bearing the marks and suffering for thee and carrying Christ our Savior in this life and knowing that one day he will come and carry us home to glory. Father, encourage our hearts as we continue until that day. Speak now through thy word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you'll take your Bibles, please turn with me to Psalm 77. Psalm 77. We continue our study in the Psalms, and we come to this particular Psalm, which is written by Asaph. And Asaph wrote a number of Psalms, and some of you may wonder, who was Asaph? Well, he was actually appointed a worship leader in the tabernacle and, te and temple by David. And he also ministered through the, uh, the reign of King Solomon. But here we have his psalm. And again, we find a heart that's bewildered, a heart that can't understand God, can't understand what he is doing. And why he is doing it. But look with me, if you would, at verses 1 through 10. We'll read all of them together and then break it down. Verse 1. Asaph writes, my, my voice rises to God, and I will cry out aloud. My voice rises to God, and he will hear me. In the day of trouble, I sought the Lord. In the night, my hand was stretched out without weariness. My soul refused to be comforted. When I remember God, then I am disturbed. What a strange statement. When I sigh, then my spirit grows faint. Thou hast held my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I have considered the days of old. The years of long ago, I will remember my song in the night. I will meditate with my heart and my spirit ponders. Will the Lord reject forever? Will he never be favorable again? Has his loving kindness ceased forever? Has his promise come to end forever? Has God forgotten to be gracious or has his has he in anger withdrawn his compassion, Selah? Then I said, it is my grief that the right hand of the Most High has changed. Here he is pouring out his heart. Here Asaph is suffering in some way. We don't know if it's physical pain, emotional, something's happened in his life. And he's crying out to God like he had many times before. But he cries out to the Lord. Notice in verse 1, my voice rises to God and I will cry aloud. My voice rises to God. Notice he says then, and he will hear me. So the psalmist here believes that God will hear his prayer. 
But yet, he is still troubled when he thinks about God. So we see his faith there just by that statement, and he will hear me. He believes in a God that answers prayer. But then he says, in the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord. In the night, my hand was stretched out without weariness. What he means by that is lying on the bed, and he's just so uh, burdened down and distraught, he raises his arms while lying on the bed up to the Lord, and, and he's just reaching out to the Lord in prayer and crying to him. Um, his, his arms don't go down, but they just stay up. They don't grow weary because he, he is calling a, uh, for God to come and save him and deliver him. And he's calling with, with so much pain in his heart. And then he says, the end of verse 2, My soul refuses to be comforted. My soul refuses to be comforted. I titled the message of this sermon, Refuse to Choose. Maybe you saw that in the bulletin. Refuse to Choose. This is what the psalmist did. According to this verse, he refused to choose something that would ease his pain. There's something there that would would help him get through, that would calm his troubled soul and mind. But he's choosing, notice he says, I refuse to be comforted. So it doesn't matter what anybody says, or even the scriptures. He just says, I refuse to be comforted. Until God changes my circumstances, I refuse any remedies that you might give me. And this is important when we look at what he continues to say, but then where this psalm goes once God finally opens his heart and he begins to understand. And he begins to choose the thing that, that we are going to look at and that something that you and I must choose if we are going to get through our, our dark days and days of trouble. There in verse 3 and 4, look what he says. When I remember God, then I am disturbed. What a statement. When I remember God, then I am disturbed. When I sigh, then my spirit grows faint. Why does he say, when I remember God, then I am disturbed? Well, see, he's, he's remembering God and his goodness. He remembers God in, in, in being gracious, but now it disturbs him because God is not showing that graciousness to him. He's not showing that so-called loving kindness or where's his compassion on me, that I, he, he's not answering my prayers. And so as he thinks about God, remembers God, he's getting disturbed. How many times have we suddenly been thrown into the fire and you and I get disturbed when we think about, well, God's in control. If I start thinking and realize that, well, is God sovereign? 
Is God truly in control of all things? If he is, then I'm disturbed because look what he's doing to me or look what he's allowing me to go through. And throughout the Old Testament, we see a number of individuals that were just like the psalmist here, that they were disturbed because they thought, God has shut his ears. He doesn't care about me anymore. Turn with me to Job chapter 7. Then we'll come back here. Go over to Job. If you're looking for it, it's right before Psalms. So go back one book. Job 7. And, you know, we, when we speak of Job and we read of Job, uh, you know, he's held up as the man who did, you know, made it through righteously. He did not sin uh, in during his suffering when God allowed all these things to take place through the hand of Satan. Satan asked God if he could, could test Job, and God said yes. Again, we don't understand all this. But I want you to look, you know, it, it, it says throughout the book of Job, and in all these things, Job did not sin with his, remember what the next word is? Lips. He did not sin with his lips, nor charge God with any wrongdoing. So Job never went to the place and says, God, you're sinning against me. You, you are wrong in what you're doing to me or allowing in my life. But yet, he was disturbed by what he was seeing and feeling as God was so distant from him, or he felt that. Let's uh, pick it up here at verse 11. Look what Job writes. Therefore, I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Am I the sea or the sea monster that thou dost set a guard over me? If I say my bed will comfort me, my couch will ease my complaint, then thou dost frighten me with dreams and terrify me by visions. Do you see what Job is doing? <laughs> he's, he's pointing the finger at God and saying, you know, I lie down to sleep, try and sleep, figure I can get away from some of the problems I'm having, but... What happens? You, God, frighten me with dreams and nightmares. How many of you have experienced nightmares? Maybe you have recently. I have a, uh, a niece uh, who, uh, not too long ago, uh, she continued to have nightmares that she, she could not control there's no, no matter what she do reading the scriptures or anything else she'd go to bed she'd have these nightmares and they were pretty constant some were were, were extremely terrifying and she'd ask for prayer our family our family would pray for her and finally that 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 uh, torturous uh, dreaming left and the Lord lifted it but you see job, realizes that God is in complete control. And so he says, you frighten me with dreams and terrors. Now, we know who really is doing it, right? 
See, Satan didn't know, didn't understand the whole, uh, you know, uh, discourse between Satan and God in chapter one. He had no idea about all that. We can see it because it's there, but but he he has no idea that Satan is moving behind the scenes, and so Satan is the one that God is allowing to even torture him in his dreams. And that's where Satan gets us, doesn't he? He will go after our minds, whether we're awake or whether we're asleep. He goes here. He figures if I can get in here and terrify the believer, Satan begins to win. Because then once fear enters my mind and heart, I begin to think, oh, God, you've deserted me. You've forsaken me. Then I start to doubt God. Right? Then he goes on. Look what he says in verse 15. So that my soul would choose suffocation, death rather than my pains. Have you ever felt that way? Like, I'd rather die than continue to suffer the way I am? I waste away. I will not live forever. Leave me alone, for my days are but a breath. What is man that thou dost magnify him, and that thou art concerned about him? That thou dost examine him every morning and try him every moment? Wilt thou never turn thy gaze away from him, nor let him alone until I swallow my, let me alone until I swallow my spit? Have I sinned? What have I done to thee? You know, it's so easy for us to go, God, what have I done? What have I done to you that, that do I deserve this? I don't deserve this. And here, here is the, the, you know, the heartache and bitterness of Job. He says, what have I done to thee, O watcher of men? Why hast thou set me as a target so that I am a burden to myself? See what Job is saying? He feels like there's a target on his back and God is shooting at him. This is, this is the great righteous Job. But we must remember Job is human. Job was suffering, and through that suffering, he was, he was really torn with a God that cares, a God that answers prayer, a God that comforts. Where is he? Where is he? Am I a target? Verse 21. Why then dost thou not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? He thinks, well, maybe he sinned somewhere, but he can't think of it. He can't think of any sin in his life. For now I will lie down in the dust, and thou wilt seek me, but I will not be. He's talking about his, his death. Job, it's okay, dear Christian, to question God. It's okay to question, Lord, what are you doing in my life? I'd like an answer. Father, why has everything changed in my life and suddenly uh, uh, things aren't the way they used to be? And suddenly, uh, maybe I've had to move or change jobs. I've lost a loved one through death or separation in a marriage, lost a child, whatever it is. And suddenly, your world turns upside down. It did in Job's life. It did in Asaph's life. And it's okay to question God. Great men of God have questioned God's doings 
and his works in their life. One that came to my mind was C.S. Lewis. Many of you have heard of C.S. Lewis, the great Christian apologist. He was a professor at Oxford. And uh, those of you who know his story, he married late in life. He was 60 years old, and he married a girl who was 40. And they fell in love, had a wonderful relationship, got married. But after they got married, she gets the news that she has cancer. Now what? And, it, and back then, it was more difficult to fight cancer. And so she began to waste away until three years after they were married, she passed. God took her. God took her through the cancer. And, you know, C.S. Lewis had written many books previously, apologetics, and, and uh, trying to tell Christians how God works and, and to encourage them and to, to build up their faith. But now he has been put to the test. And he finally writes all his thoughts down. And it turns into a book called A Grief Observed. It was the last book he ever wrote. It was published uh, at the end of his life, but he did not want his name attached to it. So he had a pseudoname attached when it was printed. But then after he died, someone later took the book and then because they knew it was C.S. Lewis's book and they put his name to it. So that's how we have it today. And we know it's his writings. But I just want to share with you some of the things that C.S. Lewis was struggling with here. He writes this because basically he was questioning the goodness of God. She, he writes concerning his wife, she is, in the, she is in God's hands, is a well-known aphorism. One hears when a loved one dies, she's in God's hands, or equally, she's at peace. And then he writes, how can we be sure that she is, in fact, at peace? How do we know that there is no anguish on the other side? This is a man of faith, a believer who was teaching other Christians how to live and to trust God. He writes, he, he then he asks, how do they know that she is at rest? Why should the separation, if nothing else, which so agonizes the lover who is left behind, be painless to the lover who departs? Another question. How do we know that the dead are, in fact, in God's hands? She was in God's hands all the time, and I have seen what they did to her. You see what he's saying? My wife was in God's hands all this time, and look what he did to her. Just like Job. Do they suddenly become gentler to us the moment we are out of the body? Do the dead hurt? Do all, does all feeling end when we die? Is there heartache on the other side? And then he writes this. He asks, 
Is God, in fact, good? He refers to the many prayers he and Joy offered with the hopes that she would be healed. That may have happened to some of you in your life, that you prayed and asked God to heal, and you haven't seen him do it. And so this is where he was, many prayers. What chokes every prayer and hope is the memory of all the prayers Joy and I offered and all the false hopes we had. C.S. Lewis is, is doubting God, doubting his faith. And he goes on and on and on. He's pouring out his heart, bewildered. Then he says, time and time when he seems most gracious, speaking of God, he is really preparing the next torture. You know, he, he just completely loses it here because he loved his wife so much and she's gone. And who else but God is in control? And so he's getting suddenly a different view of God. But then later on, as he reflected on his previous thoughts, he began to write something different. And then he wrote to himself, Why do I make room in my mind for such filth and nonsense? Aren't all these notes the senseless writings of a man who won't accept the fact that there is nothing we can do with suffering except to suffer with it? And then his faith gets stronger as time went on. He began to understand more the farther he went. And then he concluded by saying, Praise is the mode of love which always has some element of joy in it. Praise in due order of him as a giver and her, my wife, as the gift. He has lost the fruition of joy and is far away from the fruition he someday hopes to have of God. Praise is one way of retrieving that fruit. He, he began to try and, and get his joy back in his life. So uh, turn back with me, if you would, to Psalm 77. Because here's where Asaph is. He's at this place where he wonders, God, where have you gone? He go, we go on, look at verse 5. I have considered the days of old, the years of long ago. I will remember my song in the night, and I will meditate with my heart and my spirit ponders. So he, he remembers the song in the night he used to have. And he's going to meditate on his heart, but what does he meditate on? He says, my spirit ponders this, verse 7. Will the Lord reject me forever? Will he never be favorable again? Maybe you feel that way today. God, you're never going to bless me again. You're never going to. I don't feel you're taking care of me and in my suffering. Has his loving kindness ceased forever? Just sounds like Job. Has his promise come to an end? 
Has God forgotten to be gracious? Or has he in his anger withdrawn his compassion? Selah. Then I said, it is my grief that the right hand of the Most High has changed. He's saying, I'm finding grief in the fact that God's God's hand has changed in the way of graciousness and goodness to me. And something that we see David had gone through many times. Turn with quickly over to Psalm 13. Let's flip back to Psalm 15 and look at David. But we, see, we will see something different about David in his psalm. Psalm 13, verse 1. Same kind of pouring out to God with questions. Psalm 13, 1. How long, O Lord, wilt thou forget me forever? How long wilt thou hide thy face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I have overcome him. Lest my adversaries rejoice when I am shaken. So there in this psalm, David is doing the same thing as Asaph. But something changed as David's writing and crying out to God. Suddenly, he realizes that his faith in the Lord is what brought him through all the through the past sufferings in his life. And so now... He makes a choice. In his suffering, his circumstances haven't changed, but in his suffering, David says this in verse 5 and 6. But, but, or in spite of all this that's going on in my life, in spite of the fact that I don't hear from God, I wonder, is he gone? Has he forsaken me? But I have trusted in thy loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in thy salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Do you see what happened here? David suddenly makes a choice and he chooses to trust God again. He chooses to rejoice in the God of his salvation. And in the salvation he has received from God and the past times God delivered him and then he says verse 6 I will sing to the Lord because why he has dealt bountifully with me how can he say that because David began to look back David began to turn around and look back at his life and see what God did for him in the past And he looks back and says, Lord, now that I look back, you dealt bountifully with me time and time again. You delivered me. You comforted me. You brought me through the valley. And so notice the change in David. Well, we have the same kind of change, a similar change in the heart of Asaph. So go back with me to Psalm 77, and we're going to see that change here in the rest of the verses. It happens in verse 11. Here in verse 11. 
I shall remember the deeds of the Lord. Surely I will remember thy wonders of old. I will meditate on all thy work and muse on thy deeds. Thy way, O God, is holy. What a statement. That means he's saying, God, you never make a mistake. You've never sinned against me or done any sin. You're holy. Thy way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? Thou art the God who works wonders. Thou hast made known thy strength among the peoples. Thou hast by thy power redeemed thy people, the sons of Jacob and Joseph. Suddenly, what is he doing? He goes back into time and he starts to realize, wait a minute. God, I see back your wonders, your wonderful works in my life, the great works, the answers to prayer, and all that you've done for me, and here you brought me here. He's saying, I am going to remember. I'm going to remember. And this is what I pray you will take with you this week as you leave here this morning. As you leave, say, Lord, I will remember thy wondrous works. I will remember what you did for me in the past and how you brought me to this place. And Father, as I look back on your wondrous works, Lord, I remember that you are holy and you don't make any mistakes. So, Father, I'm going to trust you. As I look back, and so what is he doing? He's suddenly being thankful. He's being thankful for what God has done before. And I think so many times a problem that arises is that I can come to a place where I'm I'm completely caught off guard by some bad news or some suffering in my life. And I don't know why. And then I, what, I, what I forget to do is to go back in my mind and remember God's good works to me and his blessings in my life and go back and start thanking him, even though nothing has changed in my life. In the being thankful, being thankful for who God is and what he has done in my life. Thank him for the blessings. What I found in times of, of distress when God finally gets a hold of my heart and when I'm at a point of, of just questioning, Lord, I don't understand what you're doing. And you have that feeling of, of God so distant. I have gone and written down the things that God has done for me. And if you take a blank piece of paper when you go home and begin to write down every single thing that God has done for you, and as you write those things down, say, Lord, start at the top. Lord, I thank you for, number one, my salvation. My salvation. Number two, Lord, I thank you for giving me life, 
forgiving me forgiveness of sin, forgiving me eternity with you in heaven, and all the things that come with that. And then begin to thank him for the things like family, whatever family you have or did have, thank him for them. Thank him for your friends that God has put into your life who've been there for you. Thank him for the food he set on your table. Thank him for the job that he's given you, how he has supplied your needs all along the way. Thank you for the days of good health. I have to thank him for the days of good health when I wasn't suffering. When I begin to do that, as Asaph did, something begins to change in me. I suddenly get back a joy that I lost. And maybe this morning, dear friends, you've lost your joy in your walk with the Lord. It's so easy for it to disappear when suddenly we feel the pain. But as I go back and think on the wonders of God and his greatness and his power and what he can do, that he can do all things, that I am in his hands. And so, and he will perfect that which concerns me. And he will, he will lead me all the way to glory and he will never leave me nor forsake me. It is then that I will suddenly find the joy of my salvation again. That's why the Apostle Paul continued to say, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. He didn't say rejoice in your problem always. But he said, no, in the problem, rejoice in the Lord who he is. And may God give us a fresh vision of him and his character and his love and his graciousness and compassion, even if I don't feel it. See, here we notice that it's a choice. First, Asaph refused to choose to thank God, to look back. But it came to a point where he finally said, yes, Lord, I'm looking back and look at what you have done. How you took care of me in the past. And suddenly now he chooses to praise God, to thank him for who he is and the great things he has done. Look at the last few verses here in, in chapter 77. The last few, what is he, he, he now is just going to write a little summary of God's great power in delivering the Israelites from the Egyptians. This just comes to his mind. One of the great works of God. Verse 16, the waters saw thee, O God, the waters of the, the Red Sea. The waters saw thee, they were in anguish. The deep also trembled, the clouds poured out water, the skies gave forth a sound, thine arrows flashed here and there, the sound of thy thunder was in the whirlwind, the lightnings lit up the world, the earth trembled and shook. Now he may be talking in the beginning here of, uh, of course, what he did in the days of Noah when he brought all the water. So this would refer in the, in the beginning here most likely to what God did in judgment over the earth 
but he, God was in control of all the thunder and the skies, the water. Verse 19. Thy way was in the sea, and thy paths in the mighty waters, and thy footprints may not be known. Verse 20. Thou didst lead thy people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Who gets the glory and the credit for Israel being delivered from the, the Egyptians? God and only God. God and God alone. And I've got to remember that it will be God and God alone that's going to bring me through. He's going to bring you through this. And he's got a purpose. A purpose and a plan. He wants to purify us to mold us more and more into the image of Christ. May that begin to happen in us. But you know, the only way that can happen is if I begin to look back and say, thank you, Lord. Let's pray together. As we bow before the Lord, dear Christian, this morning, your heart may be heavy. You may have been questioning God, just like C.S. Lewis and Job and all the others. And you just can't find answers. And you feel like God has been silent. Would you choose right now to say, Lord, I choose to look back at your goodness and your wonderful works in my life and all your blessings that you've given me. And I choose to thank you for them. I choose to praise you for them. And Lord, I'm just surrendering my situation, my heart to you now. Would you do that, Christian? Make that commitment to say, I'm going to thank him and praise him for what he did in the past. And I know he will take care of me in the future. If you're here without Christ, not knowing him as Savior, I invite you to accept him by faith. Just put your trust in him. The one who went to Calvary and shed his blood, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Lamb of God, he came to take away your sins. If you've never accepted him by faith, he's the only one that can save you from your sin and give you everlasting life. Would you put your trust and faith in him now? Just pray a simple prayer like this with me, quietly in your heart. If you want to give your life to Christ and you want him to save you and forgive you all your sins, pray with me now. Say, dear Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner and I'm sorry for my sin. I believe you died on that cross for me. You took the punishment for my sin. Come into my heart right now and wash my sins away. I receive you today as my very own Savior. Thank you for dying for me and rising from the dead, Lord Jesus. And with heads still bowed, if you gave your heart to Christ this moment, you've been born again spiritually. You're part of the family of God. You're a child of God. And he has forgiven you all your sins. And he has robed you in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Welcome to the family. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for speaking once again. Father, may we look back and be thankful and to give you praise that you might in us, Lord, as we 
look back, Father, and see how great you are and how good you are. That, Lord, the joy of our salvation would be restored. I pray this for each one here. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As we conclude our service with a song...